Hello and welcome to the Leading Through Uncertainty podcast series. I'm your host, Jude Jennison from Leaders by Nature. And in this podcast, I interview leaders from different organisations and industries to find out more about the challenges they face in leading through uncertainty and how they overcome them. This week, I'm talking to Vicky Wentworth, the Chief Customer Officer at Wesleyan Assurance. Vicky's had an outstanding career so far. Having started in the military, she developed her leadership skills early on in critical war situations, and she's brought all of those leadership skills into the financial services industry. It gives her a true grounded self-confidence that you rarely see. In this interview, she shares some amazing stories of leadership, both in the military and at Wesleyan. This one's a corker. Thank you, Vicky, for joining me. Can you tell us who you are and what you do, please? Yeah, sure. Hi, I'm Vicky Wentworth. I'm the Chief Customer Officer at Wesleyan Assurance Society. Um, we are a financial services provider um, in 350. And um, basically, we serve the segments of teachers, doctors, dentists and lawyers, um, specifically with life and pensions, general insurance, savings and investment products. Right. OK, thank you. And tell us a bit more about um, what Chief Customer Officer means for you here at Wesleyan. So it's been quite an interesting journey, actually, since I uh, started in financial services. One of the things that has become apparent to me um, in very simple terms is that the customer purchases a product from a company, Mm. whoever that company might be. And if we lose line of sight of the fact of the relevance of that product, of course, there is no income. Mm. So customers become really important um, Mm -hmm. in my I suppose in my modus operandi at work around how can we create a proposition that's meaningful and serve customer needs appropriately. Um, The other thing I've realised is that if you cannot make advocates out of your people, you can't begin to make advocates out of your customers. Mm. Because your people, at the end of the day, should be your biggest supporters. They Mm. should be the ones who go down the pub on a Friday night and say how pleased they are to work for you. Yeah. don't get me wrong, I don't go down the pub every Friday night and <laughs> proclaim to everybody who will listen uh, what a great company I work for. But I think that the two go hand in hand. So mm. the role of chief customer officer for me is very much taking that to a level that I've not experienced before in industry, but a level that I feel is absolutely paramount for the culture of the organisation, the way that we do things, the way that we uh, think and approach um, our methods and processes to help customers mm. at the end of the day. And what's your biggest challenge with that? Um, I suppose in very, very simple terms, in an insurance company, one of the things I often say is, let's not forget we're all customers of insurance. Mm. For some reason, mm. as we walk through the front door of the business in the morning uh, to sit in front of our computers or to have meetings through the day, we seem to forget the things that are great experiences when we deal with insurance companies or providers and the things that really frustrate us. Mm. And what we don't then do is, so what does that mean? Should we be altering the way we do something? Because when I experienced this myself last night, this really drove me nuts. Mm. We don't, I suppose that's one of the biggest challenges is just trying to put ourselves back in a customer's shoes when we walk into the office, Mm. bizarrely. Mm. One of the simplest, but also one of the hardest things to do. Interesting. And what are your experiences of leading through uncertainty? Um, So I suppose, a bit unfairly, I've got a background where uncertainty was, um, 
I suppose, a given. So um, before I joined financial services, I was in the army. Mm-hmm. I joined the army from university after having done a blue chip uh, general management training scheme. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, but I very bravely, at the ripe old age of 22, decided that I like people, travel and sport. So what better career <laughs> to embark upon but the military? I went to Sandhurst thinking, you know, it was all going to be fine. Um, but all my friends said, you'll last two minutes. What on earth are you doing? Um, but actually, I didn't. The military catapulted me through role after role. And 10 years on, I look back and um, joined financial services with a really exciting and very fulfilling career behind me. Mm. So um, I suppose commanding soldiers is probably one of the most humbling things I think I will ever do. Mm. Um, and commanding soldiers in peacetime is one thing, and commanding soldiers in a war fighting environment is, of course, another. Mm. So when you say about leading through adversity, um, in my 10 years in the Army, I did seven operational tours, which included um, Bosnia, Kosovo, Northern Ireland, Iraq, Afghanistan. Wow. I did two tours of Iraq. Um, and um, I so suppose... So you really did your time. <laughs> I did my... I earned... I definitely earned my stripes, as yeah. they say. Um, but actually, in a warfighting environment, you do really have to lead through adversity. Mm. So I suppose probably the, in, the experience that marked me the most was when I first came out of Sandhurst. Um, Santos is a 12-month course. Mm. Um, you do all manner of uh, drills and things to cope with scenarios, should mm. they happen. And I found myself six months out of Sandhurst attached to a completely different brigade, which was based in Germany, 4 Armour Brigade, um, in Kosovo, on the Macedonian border, waiting to cross into Kosovo to try and be a peacekeeping force between the Serb and the Albanian um, population so um that's not very long is it i mean if you think 18 months out of university there you are with the responsibility of peacekeeping if you if you compare that to a graduate trainee in an organization 18 months in you wouldn't give them anywhere close to that responsibility no and the irony is at santos i can remember um sounds a bit precocious but i can remember thinking we did some drills whereby, you know, it was a case of we'd taken a casualty and you have to cordon the area and you take the rifle off the individual who's fired it because actually suicide is very, very prevalent once you have, you know, fired a rifle and killed somebody. You mm. have to, we have to be able to protect the individual that's that's taken that action. Mm. And there's a, you know, there's a whole host of scenarios that you go through. And I can remember coming to the end of my time at Sandhurst and thinking, oh, God, this is so dull. Not another cordon the area, take the <laughs> rifle of the person, blah, blah, blah. But then, ironically, six months out of Sandhurst, I found myself in Pristina. Um, we'd gone through the Kachanic D file. Um, at this point, um, we'd already come across the first set of mass graves um, and multiple mass graves as we'd gone through the Kachanic D file. Found myself in Pristina, um, separated from my troop. Um, or the majority of the the regiment, I should say, because uh, we tried that we knew that the sort of RV, that's the the rendezvous point, was the airport. Mm-hmm. What we didn't know, because we had no radio communications, was that the airport had been taken over by the Russians. Right. So as I took my soldiers to get onto the airfield, we were getting turned away by Russian soldiers with AK-47s 
pretty aggressively, telling us to go another way. Um, me being um, probably naive, but also pretty tenacious, decided that there must be another way onto the airfield and that I, the airfield was going to be circular. And at some point, if I worked my way around the outside, I would find my way on. Um, well, the long and the short of it is uh, every single entrance and exit had been uh, taken by Russian troops. We all, obviously I didn't know this at mm. all, um, but as an officer, you're put into that environment with a pistol, mm. had a Browning nine mil. I'm not quite sure what use I would have been to anybody, man nor beast, with a with a pistol like that. But the long and the short of it was, we found ourselves in an environment whereby um, we were challenged um, by what was then and apparent to us to be an MUP policeman. Um, and of course, our mission was not to kill. Our mission was a peacekeeping mm, task. Mm. Um, he was quite aggressive. He was coming towards us. He was challenging one of my soldiers on point. Um, and um, my, we, were, we always had to um, challenge back to ask them to put their weapons down. We'd learned to be able to say that in Serb-Albanian. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and therefore, you know, the soldier was doing everything he needed to do. Um, but this MUP policeman was still coming towards us, brandishing his weapon. And uh, one, my soldier opened up. He mm. opened up fire on him. And uh, he did the right thing because latterly we found out that the MUP policeman was high on drugs and alcohol. Uh -huh. He had rounds in the chamber. Um, so actually it could have been a case of us mm. or him. Mm. But I was six months out of Santos. Mm. I was a baby. Um, so when it That's comes, to, a lot to deal with at that age, isn't it? Uh, yes, but like I said, I went into right. Let's cordon the area. Let's take the take the rifle off the individual. You know, let's make sure the press stay away, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And all of those drills came absolutely, uh, just automatically, mm. and bizarrely, it wasn't until probably a few months later when I come back off tour that I processed all of that mm. and found out and so I suppose just thought goodness me so actually if you're very practiced in something mm. it can really pay dividends when the chips are down mm. anyway the long and the short of it was um, that was uh, it was a pretty it was a pretty flamboyant tour from mm. that perspective um, you know if you think that was within the first 24 hours um, and it went on to be equally as um, I suppose action-packed as we went through but um, leading through adversity when you're taking people um, out onto the streets and asking them to potentially risk their lives mm. in situations where there is uncertainty um, you know does require a certain amount of gravitas mm. and thoughtful yeah. thoughtful leadership and how do you draw the parallels? I mean, hopefully there are no rifles here in the office today at Wesleyan but how do you how do you draw the parallels between leading through uncertainty in that environment, which is an extreme life or death situation, versus everyday life in in Wesleyan? So um, I suppose some of the things that I've, some of the skills that I've, I've hopefully um, tried to move across with me are things like, um, I often got criticised when I first left the military and joined industry for seeming to not care when things went wrong. And I couldn't understand what people meant because actually profoundly I cared mm. really deeply mm. um, about things not going wrong. But what I realized was I wasn't stratospheric. I wasn't on the ceiling mm. screaming and shouting and, you know, creating confusion and 
I was actually methodically trying to work through a problem, problem solve for my team, keep them calm, give mm. them direction, keep a very clear train of thought. And so I, always moving forward. Always moving forward. Mm. Always. You can't possibly stand still. And mm. actually, the minute as a leader you stand still, your team lose their way. Mm. They start to go around mm. in circles. Mm because they're waiting mm. for that level of direction in uncertain times. Yes, yeah. Um, and you see a lot of that where people get caught in that rabbit and headlights of what do we do now? We don't know which way to go. Mm. So what I'm hearing is that it gave you the skills to keep going and to, to create from the movement rather than from... Absolutely. And to, to keep moving forwards. Mm. And I think one of the things that I did learn um, and have brought with me is forwards doesn't always mean in a straight line no <laughs> so there's also something about um, when you hit a sleeping policeman are there certain obstacles you need to go round in order to get where you need to go mm. um, I've also got brought up in an environment where you know I can remember even clearly now my grandmother saying there's no such word as can't mm. and um, I used to be so infuriated with that saying when I was a child <laughs> <laughs> I was like how do you know what do you know but um, I look back now and I think, actually, there really isn't very much that you can't do. Mm. Um, it's just how you go about mm. it mm. and how you apply yourself or your, you know. And how committed you are to it. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah quite. And what I'm also hearing is huge amounts of trust in yourself and in your team to be able to keep moving forward. Yeah, and I think one of, I mean, I've recently taken over a new team, actually. And um, I think what's quite interesting is, how quickly you can build or try to build that mm, trust and mm. how quickly some people come on that journey and how quickly others perhaps don't. Mm -hmm. um, so trust is a deal breaker for me. And mm. I often say to some to you know teams and things, if you can identify your deal breaker, and that might be, you know, it might be financial reward, it might be raising the bar, it might be um, you know, being innovative, uh, entrepreneurial, it could be any amount of things that, are, you know, that you need in your working life, but there's one that is a deal breaker. Mm. Trust is mine. Mm. And I think as a result, um, I hope that emulates from me. Mm. And I, th I also believe that if you feel so strongly about something, when it emulates from you, people understand it's non-negotiable. Yeah. And it helps them. Mm. If they are similarly aligned and similarly motivated, it helps them to come with you mm -hmm. because they realise, they can see that consistency, that level of gravitas, that um, unbending almost sort of uh, line or mm. path mm. that you tread. Mm. Um, and I think it help, it's becomes a fulcrum mm. as a leader, that deal breaker mm. for you. It helps, it helps centre you. Mm. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the things that I've, I've heard a lot is about creating the certainty in the uncertainty. So what I'm hearing for you is that trust is is part of how you create some certainty. Um, and, and I'm also hearing that grounded, that groundedness as well of not being stratospheric and not creating chaos and confusion. Because I think in uncertainty, it's easy to create that. Mm -hmm. And actually what we need to be able to do is create some more certainty mm -hmm. And, and trust is your way of, of doing it. I think also you need to be able to understand your team and, and think, so do they have the, are they in a position whereby empowerment is going to be good right now mm. and therefore you can let them go and keep a watch from afar? Um, 
or is the mood music such that you need to keep them close, you need to corral them, they mm. need more direction, they need more support. And individuals will be different yeah. in all of those environments. Mm. And as we discussed earlier, you know, and it might be at different times of the day, not even on different days. It depends what you've just experienced and how that's impacted you or how you've received it. So I think there's something about understanding when people want to go mm. and go off on the end of the leash, mm -hmm. for want of a better expression, and almost plough their furrow and make a few small mistakes as long as you know they the team know that they can always come back and ask versus those people who need a little bit more corralling mm. and um as i say through any crisis different people will react differently at different times mm. so it's about having the emotional intelligence to spot that mm. and that means constant communication it means touch points very very regularly uh, as a leader keeping your eyes and ears to the ground mm -hmm. hearing what's happening and mm. when i say hear i mean really listen mm. it's very easy for us as leaders to hear what some well we take in what somebody says and we make it mean something mm. rather than not necessarily what it was meant to mean yes yeah um so it's yeah. almost hearing behind the words isn't it absolutely and um you know the, only once or twice in my career have i um have I kicked myself latterly for having missed something mm. when something's been not obvious but something's been there in the background and mm. my instinct has told me something's there um, but I haven't heard it mm. I haven't really truly asked enough questions or thought hard enough about mm. why it is somebody's behaving in the way they're behaving mm. I say only a couple of times and um and, uh, you know, life's a journey, isn't mm, it? We're yeah, learning all the time. Absolutely, so. yeah. Um, now, obviously, you're in the financial services industry, and it is an industry that has had huge amounts of change in the last few years, and it's probably got more to come. What are the challenges that you're facing in, within that environment related to the uncertainty that that creates? Um, so I think, firstly, is regulation. Mm -hmm. We're a regulated um area and therefore that brings challenges in itself i mean it increases cost for example mm. um i mean regulation is there for a very good reason of course it's yeah. there to protect the customer um, and to make sure that um you know companies are adhering to a certain code of conduct now we only have ourselves to blame quite frankly in financial services for their regulation getting uh, more stringent mm -hmm. um and but you know I think on behalf of the customer I think that's that's not a bad thing but it is one of the challenges that we face because it does bring a lot more complexity into an environment at the same time that government's trying to sort of relinquish um, some of those sort of uh, reins on pension freedoms for mm -hmm. example and to say well you know customers you can do an awful lot people you can do much much more with your money mm. at the point of retirement so they're almost giving consumers more freedom and less freedom to the actual providers of mm. the solutions if that makes sense yeah um so that's one um secondly um customer behavior is changing mm -hmm. and that's a good thing um but it is a challenge uh, it's a really good thing because um a customer's interaction with you as an organization their expectation is set on the last interaction they had mm -hmm. and that could be with google it could be with amazon facebook um, Apple, you know, some really big brands that have brilliant customer experience. And then they come to an insurance company where we're laggards at the best of times mm -hmm. with customer um, interactions. And we, you know, we tend to think that we've done it this way for a long time and customers are 
you know, happy, but I think actually the insurance industry is really waking up, mm. really waking up to hearing customers say, actually, I don't want you to interact with me like that anymore. Mm-hmm. I want it at a time that's appropriate for me. Mm. And that might not be between the hours of nine and five. That mm. might be at 3 a.m. in the morning if mm. I'm a surgeon and I've just come off shift. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, and I'm not quite ready to go to bed. I'm actually quite keen for you to do something differently. Um, so interact with me differently at a time that suits me um, in a way that suits me. So mm-hmm. please don't give me stuff that isn't optimised for mobile because mm-hmm. I do everything on my mobile these days, etc., yeah. etc. Et so consumer behaviour is changing. Mm-hmm. I think also with the internet of things, as we call it, um, customers are more savvy now mm-hmm. or more willing to look, more willing to research. Mm-hmm. They'll do a lot of peer-to-peer research mm-hmm. for recommendations, but they do a lot of research. They want to be a little bit more knowledgeable than mm-hmm. perhaps they might have been previously when they actually do engage with financial services. Most people have looked up a mortgage rate, for example, what's competitive and what isn't, even mm. if it's in the paper, yeah. um, prior to engaging with a, a mortgage company. Mm. So consumer sentiment's changing. And I suppose the other really big one is um, technology. Mm. It's the new normal, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> <You know? laughs> it is, and it brings huge amounts of uncertainty because it's creating the change, and a lot of the change that you're talking about with the consumer behaviour is technology-driven. Yeah. Um, and the way that consumers are adapting to the technology that's there and driving the technology. And what they're asking for from us Mm, is technology-driven. And it's just the new normal. It's just every single day something different. So how do you you influence um, a traditional business in in the financial services industry? How do you you leverage the the need to respond more quickly? I mean, people talk a lot about agility and mm-hmm. flexibility and Great words. being entrepreneurial, and I hear that all the time. But actually, that's, that's, you know, that's easy for a small business. How do you create that in, in a much more traditional environment? So I think, um, I think if I was to be really savvy, I would turn around and say, you don't have to create it, you just have to create the perception. Mm-hmm. So you just have to make the customer feel mm. at the front end as if there is a much more dynamic machine behind the interaction that they're having than perhaps there is. Right. So every single insurance company that's been around for 176 years as we have, you know, has legacy systems mm. and, you know, coming out of the yin-yang. Um, yes, and they're, they're a challenge, but most insurance companies in the UK are actually in the same positions. Mm. The, you know, there's a few startups, but and they are lucky in the sense they're not hindered by the same legacy. But that, um, so I think the perception is definitely everything mm. for the customer. So, and digital is great in the sense that you can link so many things together now mm-hmm. with different types of infrastructure that enable different systems and processes to talk to one another to right. create a more seamless environment for the customer. But I'm also a great believer in, I don't think that digital in the insurance world replaces everything mm-hmm. tomorrow. I think there's a really big place for human interaction. Mm. It, some of the choices you make um, in your life from a financial services perspective are enormous, mm. i.e., I've saved all my life and my pension. What am I going to do with it Mm. now? Mm. Or I need to save for my retirement, um, but I don't want to be losing 30% of my investment if the stock market crashes. These are really massive decisions for people. So I do believe there is still a time and a place for human interaction. Mm. We have quite a big tied advisor network, which means that they're tied to us. They sell our products. Um, 
and we um, but we have a full holistic suite and we we have third party providers as well but mm -hmm. we try um and that's a massive part of our strategy mm. so um yeah so i think that's probably it's a constant battle to be upgrading technology and mm. it's a bottomless pit when it comes yes. to the money um but i think it's creating the perception to the customer mm. that you're doing the right thing. I, so it's almost like the user interface, as long as the, the experience for the, for the customer is easy and effortless, it doesn't matter how much hard work is going on in the background for you, because that's your problem. And, think, and as long as they, they have it in a way that is effortless and easy for them, then it doesn't matter that there's a, almost a disparity between the two. From a customer's perspective, I'm sure it doesn't. Mm. Uh, you know, as an, a customer of insurance... Um, I don't really want to be bothered with how many problems a company has behind the scenes to deal mm -hmm. with, you know, the problem or the issue that I've come to them with. Um, of course, it does have an impact on business because all of those clumsy processes cost money. Yes, so they up your cost base, mm -hmm. etc., and therefore mm -hmm. make you less efficient. Mm -hmm. um, but I think there's also something about we're we sort of call it single view of customer. And the single view of customer is it doesn't matter at what point you touch our organization you should be able to feel our brand. Mm. So whether you come into, you know, you, so we've got a call center that does outbound calling to book appointments for mm -hmm. the financial advisors. You then might see a financial advisor and then heaven forbid, you might need to talk to our service center to change an address or something, you know, something more sinister may have happened whereby you need to make a claim. So all of that needs to be done seamlessly for the customer. Mm. They need mm. to be able to feel the brand, the personality of the company. And they need to be able to feel different levels of empathy mm. depending on where they come into the process. So if mm. you come here and you want, if you phone in, you want to buy a general insurance motor policy cover, mm -hmm. you really don't want someone to be going, oh, so how are you today? You know, is everything all right? <laughs> you know, you're, you, you probably want it short, sharp, shrift. Yeah. You, want, you want business, commercial, timescales. You want it fast. Because mm -hmm. actually it's a obligatory product and it's not something that you really yeah. engage with personally yeah. it's just something you have to have whereas mm -hmm. of course if you're ringing up because you sadly need to have you know notify us of a death claim of course much very 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 different conversation mm. but it's important that the individual on the end of the phone from our perspective understands everything that's going on right so I, I have so there's a level of emotional intelligence that that everybody in the organization needs to to have mm to be able to respond and it's back to what you were saying earlier about being able to respond differently to different people mm, because even I'm guessing even with a death claim some people will respond in you know some customers will will turn up in one way and others will be very different so can, I'll just give a little a really tiny story mm. ever so short as to why this is important so um uh Somebody rang in the other day she was an elderly lady and rang in to renew her motor policy now, it transpired because of the information the call center could see that they knew that her husband had recently died. As a result of her husband recent, having recently died, it, we found out that she had never ever had to buy her own motor insurance. She didn't know how to do it. She didn't know, she didn't know the first thing about it. Mm -hmm. And initially on the call was exceedingly nervous and actually very upset. Mm. Um, it was because we could see the information on that customer right. that enabled the person on the end of the telephone to be much more empathetic mm. and say, have you ever needed to buy car insurance before? At mm. which point this lady burst into tears and mm. said, no, I've recently mm. lost my husband, blah, blah, blah. And anyway, we talked her through it. We managed to get her back on cover. 
Um, she hadn't been covered for a few weeks, actually, but you know what? I think we are a mutual, and therefore we are we can do what's right mm-hmm. by the customer. Um, so there was none of the oh, you're losing your no claims bonus or anything mm-hmm. like that. But the um, I think the other the other side of it for me was we actually sent her a bunch of flowers in sympathy mm. to say how sorry we were, you know, that she'd lost her, her husband recently. And, you know, that sort of that sort of delighting customers when they least mm. expect it mm. is when a company can be most powerful. Mm. Cost nothing. Um, cost £25 for a bouquet of flowers, yeah. but actually the sentiment you create. So it comes down to being able to deal with a customer at a point in time which is most appropriate. Wow, that's quite moving to, to hear that story, so thank you for sharing that. Um, going back to uncertainty, um, what kind of a leader are you in uncertainty? Oh, goodness. <laughs> um, so, I'd like to... Things that I try and adhere to, I'm a very principled individual, very, very principled, very values driven. And one of the things I try to do um, in uncertain times is stay true to those values. Mm. So there are some things that are, you know, non-negotiable for me, mutual respect. Um, So my team will never have seen me flounce. They'll Mm. never have seen me lose my temper. Mm. Um, I don't pass a crossword. Mm -hmm. Um, I reprimand in private and Mm -hmm. celebrate success collectively. Um, so mutual respect is really important for me. Integrity is everything. Mm. No matter how unpopular the, the decision, I need to be able to look myself in the mirror at the end of the day and decide whether I do or I don't like myself. Mm-hmm. So um, that for me is really important. Moral courage. Mm. People assume that being a leader is quite glorious and um, you know fast moving and entertaining, but actually it's pretty lonely at times. Mm-hmm. And a uh, you know, there have been occasions where I've looked outside my office and thought, there's not many people out there who want to talk to me today. Mm. I've made a decision that is um, exceedingly unpopular, consistent and fair, mm. but unpopular. Mm. Um, people get over that if you are consistent and fair, mm. but uh, it's not always a it's not always a very friendly place to mm. be. Not many people queuing up outside my office asking me to go out for lunch, for example. Mm. No, but I'm hearing also, and you talked earlier about the importance of trust, so I'm, I'm guessing that that holds you in good stead in those moments that people yeah, will trust that when you've made a, de- a decision, even if it is a difficult one, that it's for the greater good and that, and that we all have to make difficult decisions at times, don't we? And, and it is for the greater good. Mm. I don't believe in business there's room for ego. Mm. Um, would I have said that 20 years ago? Probably not. Mm. Um, I was ambitious, as ambitious as the next person. Mm. Um, but I feel now that actually it has to be for the greater good mm. of the business. It mm. must be. It's one collegiate collaborative effort mm. with one purpose in mind. Mm. And if that means that you have one or two sacrificial lambs along the way, um, i.e. business units that don't make profit for yeah. the greater good of society, etc., then you know perhaps that is not a bad thing. Mm. Mm. But it's about the one common purpose. Mm. Um, and it's how you make those decisions too. Absolutely. Yeah. So one final question for you. What would your top tip be for any aspiring leaders? Don't think you're ever going to know all the answers. Mm. I've always looked at the level above me as I've gone through my career and they always seem so in control. Um, they know everything. <laughs> <laughs> when things go wrong, they seem in utter, you know, 
they're just in this amazing aura that exudes from them and I've always thought oh my goodness how do they know so much and what I've realized as I've gone up through <laughs> the levels is actually you just never have all the answers mm. you're cuffing it some days just like the best of them mm. so um stop the voice in the back of your head saying you're going to get found out yeah and actually you don't know it mm. it's fine mm. we don't nobody knows it all and yeah and I think especially when you know in the uncertainty that we're currently finding ourselves in is that we can't know all the answers that's the whole point of uncertainty is there is no right answer so mm. so it is about navigating our way through so it's build a great team mm. build a team that actually does have the answers because mm. you're absolutely right you can't possibly ever know it all mm. and if you do then well, I would imagine you're probably kidding yourself. Life, yes. <laughs> life is that journey, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Vicky. It's been amazing to talk you. to you. Thank you for having me. Wow, what fascinating stories Vicky has that demonstrate the importance of being able to lead through uncertainty with confidence. She has this ability to profoundly care, as she puts it, while staying calm under pressure. I rarely hear people talk about empathy, but that's right at the heart of everything she's doing. I like the idea of having a deal breaker that is non-negotiable. It creates some consistency and certainty for people that they, they know they can rely on you for. For Vicky, it's trust. For me, it's courage and compassion. What's your deal breaker? That's it for this podcast. I was your host, Jude Jennison from Leaders by Nature. Keep leading and I'll come back soon with the next interview on Leading Through Uncertainty. Mm-hmm.